0: Mr. Cooper.
1: Yes. I...
0: Let me come right to the point. You, sir, are a demented, sick, degenerate, barbaric, naughty freako. Why, thank you.
2: Hi-ho, and welcome once again to A Feat of Lunatic Daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, we talk a lot on this show about nightmare fuel. We do. And, and uh, uh, certain puppets or sketches that just, you know, are a little a little disturbing, a little uh, upsetting or off-putting. Tonight, we dive into what was actually... Actual factual for little Chad nightmare fuel.
3: I can see that.
2: This this is a moment I've been waiting for to get to episode 307. When I was a kid, I, here's what I learned tonight, Nick. I learned that my kids are way tougher than me. They got a little scared, but they were fine. When I saw this, I was probably four or five. And Alice Cooper sent me screaming out of the room. I look at it now. <laughs> it's kind of corny.
3: I mean, I, I had a similar experience with The Dark Crystal, where I was terrified of that as a kid, but it's now one of my favorite movies.
2: You know, I think scaring kids is okay. I
3: really do. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that was my old household philosophy, so I, I hear you.
2: Within reason. I, I'm not sure I would endorse your upbringing.
3: <laughs> I wouldn't
2: recommend it. But, you know, a little Alice Cooper? No problem. This is A Feet of Lunatic Daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at lunatic daring on facebook instagram twitter lunaticdaring.com where you'll find all of our episodes our watch list and our bibliography we are currently going through the third season of the muppet show two episodes at a time
3: couple of heavy hitters tonight these uh both both of our guests tonight seem like they were pretty pretty massive in their respective fields
2: they're two very different episodes but they're both very high concept i would agree with that i
3: really liked both of these but uh, let's get started let's get it started
0: Joe, with our very special guest, star, Alice Cooper.
2: Yay! Yay! I know I ask you this all the time, but I gotta know what, what was your conception of Alice Cooper?
3: A general conception of seventies rock that sort of rolls Ozzy Osbourne, Alice Cooper, and Kiss all into a ball. And like, I, I haven't done a deep enough dive on any of them. Bowie exists independent of that, but it's Bowie. But like, I knew who he was. Um, I I feel like I've seen him off and on since childhood, but by the time I would, by the time I came around, he was already, for lack of a better term, kind of older news, or I I guess it'd be kinder to say established.
2: I would say pretty much kind of during your lifetime, he kind of has become mostly just famous for being Alice Cooper, Mm. Vincent Damon Fernier or Fernier, one of the two, but I'm going to say Fernier because it's, you know, it's funnier. Was born February 4th, 1948 in Detroit, Michigan. His father was an evangelist in the Church of Jesus Christ, which is, yes, one of the religions that considers the Book of Mormon.
0: Hello, my name is Elder Price, and I would like to share
2: with you the most amazing book. Hello, my name is Elder Grant. It's a book about America a long, long time ago. The Book, not the musical, as scripture. In fact, Vincent's grandfather was both an apostle and the president of that church at one point. Wikipedia says he had a series of childhood illnesses. I couldn't figure out which ones, but I'm guessing asthma or something breathing related because whatever it was, it caused his family to move to Phoenix, Arizona, uh, where he attended Cortez High School in Glendale. In 1964, at the age of 16, Vincent got together with four of his cross country teammates. Yes, Alice Cooper. One thing you have to remember about Alice Cooper is he's kind of a jock. He got four of his cross-country teammates and formed a band to play the high school talent show. They called themselves the Ear Wigs. They dressed up like the Beatles and sang parodies of Beatles songs. Only one member of the group, Glenn Buxton, knew how to play any instrument, so he played guitar while the others relied on the ancient art of mime. Apparently, the show went well enough, though, because they decided to give it a try and be a real band, renaming themselves the Spiders and, you know, for the most part, learning their instruments. Vincent Fernier was made the lead vocalist. After graduation, their rhythm guitarist left and was replaced by a football player from a rival school. Their single, "Don't Blow Your Mind," was a number one hit locally, tearing up the airwaves in Phoenix. I
4: one day to find game. Well, now you know you feel.
2: By 67, the band was making occasional road trips to L.A. to play shows, and they renamed themselves Naz, N-A-Z-Z, and put out a song called Wonder Who's Lovin' Her Now, with a B-side track, Lay Down and Die, Goodbye, which would later be an Alice Cooper cut. I pray in my In 68, the band changed its name to Alice Cooper. They chose the name simply because it sounded wholesome, generic, safe, and white bread, which would contrast with their music and their style. Vincent also started wearing makeup and created a stage persona inspired by various pop culture elements from Betty Davis to Barbarella to Emma Peel from the Avengers. So after playing a real bad gig at the Cheetah Club in Venice Beach, where the entire crowd had walked out after like 10 minutes, the band was approached by a music manager who thought they had potential. He introduced them to psychedelic musician and producer Frank Zappa, who, after an audition, signed them to his new label, Straight Records. Their first album, Pretties for You, was released in
1: 1969.
2: So that same year, Vincent Fournier, while on stage, bit the head off of a live chicken and drank its blood on stage to the cheers of the ravenous mob. Well, that's the legend, at least. What really happened was that Alice Cooper was playing the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival concert when someone threw a chicken, possibly in a pillowcase, uh, onto stage. The boy from Detroit and from Phoenix, not exactly a farm guy, assuming the chicken could fly, tossed it into the air, where it quickly plummeted to the ground landing in the venue's wheelchair section, where apparently, and this is pretty bad, don't be me wrong, apparently the fans ripped the chicken apart. The story that came out of it, of the head biting and the blood squirting, became an instant sensation and was just the right kind of publicity for a heavy band like Alice Cooper. After Vincent told Zappa what had really happened, Zappa said, well, whatever you do, don't tell anyone you didn't do it. This is the moment when Alice Cooper invented shock rock. The band's second album came in 70, but flopped. They left L.A. and went to Detroit, home of pioneering bands like the Stooges and the MC5. Alice found the Midwest to be a good fit for them. Their third album, Love It to Death, featured their first hit single, I'm 18.
4: from the ups and downs.
2: Based on its success, Warner Brothers Records bought their contract and released the album on a much bigger scale, with a much bigger A&R budget. They made more records, um, several. In 72, they released the single Schools Out, which went top 10 in the U.S., and the album of the same name reached number two and gave them their first platinum record. 1973's Muscle of Love, real subtle, guys, was the seventh and final studio album by the original Alice Cooper lineup. It didn't perform super well and the band started squabbling, and I'm sure there's a VH1 behind the music about it somewhere, but we all know where this is going. They took a quote-unquote temporary hiatus. In 1975, Vincent, who was going by Alice now, released his first solo album, Welcome to My Nightmare. To avoid legal complications over ownership of the group name, he legally changed his name to Alice Cooper. This marked the end of the band, as it Alice's intentions were kind of clear now that, you know, he was going solo. Nightmare was led by the hit ballad Only Women Bleed. Only women bleed. Only women bleed.
1: Man makes your hair gray. He's your life's mistake. All you're really looking for is An even break.
4: He lies right at you. You know you hate this game. Slaps you once in a while and you live in love
2: and pain. Uh it's a concept album based on the nightmare of a child named Steven and features narration by fellow Muppet Show guest star Vincent Price.
0: Moving to the next aisle, we have Arachnida, the spiders, our finest collection. This friendly little devil is the Hepterthyllidae, unfortunately harmless. Next to him, the nasty Lycosa raptoria. His tiny fangs cause creeping ulcerations of the skin. <laughs> And here, my prize, the Black Widow, isn't she lovely and so deadly? Her kiss is 15 times as poisonous as that of the
2: rattlesnake. (laughs) This all went along with the outrageous stage shows he was known for putting on. Pyrotechnics and lights and all that, sure, but what about an 8-foot-tall furry cyclops that the lead singer would, near the climax of the show, decapitate on stage? I've never seen Metallica do that. In 1977, Cooper checked himself into a sanitarium for treatment. He had been consuming two cases of Budweiser and a bottle of whiskey a day. After getting out, newly sober, Alice made an album called From the Inside, kind of an autobiographical thing, and he wrote it with Elton John's songwriting partner, Bernie Taupin. The sobriety didn't last long, and Cooper says he cannot remember a big chunk of the 1980s. But he was eventually hospitalized with cirrhosis of the liver, and this time he got sober for good. Alice has done Hollywood Squares, been on WrestleMania, done a little bit of acting. He almost died when rehearsing a stage trick where he pretended to hang himself, but instead actually kind of really did hang himself. He had a song on the Friday the 13th Part 6 soundtrack. Um, listen, there's a lot. Alice spends the next couple of decades just being Alice Cooper. He keeps making records. Some people care about them, some don't. He kept touring. Some people went, some people didn't. In the 2000s, he played Dungeons and Dragons on that 70s show.
1: Cheer up, King Zentar the Great. Let's get out there and slay that dragon.
2: Released more albums, was given a star on the Walk of Fame in 2003. He received the Rock Immortal Award at the 2007 Scream Awards. And I knew that because I was in the crowd that night. Alice Cooper plays schools out with Slash and Rob Zombie. I was in the crowd. He's worked and toured with Rob Zombie and Marilyn Manson, who, who obviously was a ripoff of Cooper. And they actually had a little bit of a beef about it, but they kind of squashed it. But as we found out, Marilyn Manson's a piece of shit. Alice Cooper, the band, was indu- inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010. Alice is a big sports fan. He uh, is very, very famous as a golfer. He's very famously a golfer. He's even done commercials for Callaway Golf. He's a Republican, but doesn't really like to talk politics very much. He is a restaurateur, more on that in a moment, a radio DJ, an icon really, an author, a father of three, and has been married to the same woman for 45 years. What Alice Cooper did more than anything, though, especially in his years before The Muppet Show, was introduce horror imagery to rock and roll and elevate kind of this heavy metal stagecraft in a way that would change the genre forever. He was released nearly 30 albums, the most recent one this year in 2021, and has been touring almost constantly since 1968. He's currently 73. So my Alice Cooper story. I've never met Alice. I've met two of his three children. In 2006, we were making uh, the movie that I wrote, Dakota Sky, in Phoenix, Arizona. One of the people who auditioned to play the lead, um, who was a friend of a friend, was a woman named Calico Cooper, Alice's daughter. We decided to go a different way for the lead, but we offered her a smaller role and she took it. Phoenix was kind of her hometown anyway, because Alice, that's Alice's home base. So we were out there shooting the movie and she, she only worked a couple of days, but we were... Three weeks into production, we needed a place to hold a concert. There was a small rock show in the script, and we we were having a hard time finding a place. Calico, his daughter, made a, made a call to Alice and asked him if we could use his sports bar. He has a place called Cooperstown in Phoenix, downtown Phoenix, that has this kind of outdoor stage for performances. But it's kind of a small thing that, that a local band would totally play. And he gave it to us for free for a night. And um, and let us shoot there, saved in and, and in a movie with a super low budget. Anything you get for free is a blessing. And we got a whole location for free. And the, the scene turned out really well. It was a nightmare to shoot, but it turned out really well. Of everyone on The Muppet Show, he's the only guest star that I actually owe a debt of gratitude to. What did you think of Alice Cooper?
3: I liked it a lot. I, this episode is a very strong
2: one. Uh, the Muppet Show, episode number 307, with special guest star Vincent Fournier. Produced late March 1978, premiered in November Uh, directed by Peter Harris. This is the first episode with Steve Whitmire performing. We talked about how, you know, Jane had um, interviewed him in Atlanta, I remember. Mm -hmm. This is the first episode with Steve. He actually plays Thog. We see a lot of Thog this episode. We got a lot of monsters, you know? Very famous opening. Actually, this is a very famous cold open where Scooter knocks on the door and... Alice Cooper?
0: 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Cooper? Ready whenever you say, Scooter. (laughs) Uh, Sir... there's something you should
2: know and he's surrounded by monsters including one that really creeps me out called silver beak did not like silver beak it's the one with the triangle silver beak but he's surrounded by monsters and scooters like
0: these monsters aren't ours i know they're mine.
2: But these monsters, including Chop Liver and a couple others, they're going to be his uh, his band for the episode. We have the Muppet Show theme. Kermit comes out. After he uh, introduces Alice, he gives a little shiver, you know? Mm. I think he did the same thing for Vincent Price. My daughter predicted that bats were going to fly out of Gonzo's trumpet. It's like a Will-O-The-Wisp, wasn't it? Said it was like a, like a little spirit, a little ghost. Mm. But she got pretty close. Kermit comes out to introduce the show.
0: Welcome again to the Muppet Show. Hey, tonight our special guest star is one of the world's most talented but frightening performers, Alice Cooper. So beware of ghoulies and ghosties and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night. <laughs> well, that does it. I'm leaving. Uh, here's Alice Cooper.
2: And then the lights go out Um, and there's like some eerie noises and stuff. And like, Just like with the Vincent Price episode, because Alice is on the show, pretty much everything, with one notable exception, is going to be spooky. And he introduces Alice's first number. This is the uh, uh, title track from his first solo album and one of his, I'd say, three most famous songs, Welcome to My Nightmare. Welcome to my nightmare. (laughs) Welcome to my
1: nightmare. I think you're gonna feel You belong Welcome
3: to my nightmare yeah. So, my, like, the one note that I put down for this is just proto-goth Well, there's that, and then also the, the re-imaging of the River Bottom Nightmare Band Like, was, were there goth kids before Alice Cooper? Or was that something that predominantly took, took off in, like, the 80s?
2: He helped build that for sure. Um, you wouldn't have... You definitely wouldn't have KISS without Alice. Mm. You wouldn't have Manson. But no, he he's the first one. One of the first ones, I'd say. There, there were others. Black Sabbath did this a little bit too. Mm. That brought this... Black Sabbath did the less um, showy version of this. If there's somebody else, it's somebody unheralded that I don't know. Mm. But... Yeah, he kind of c- helped create this I- musical identity that in-, in tying what we would consider now to be not quite metal, but hard rock to evil, mm. to the devil. I mean, obviously, I think he probably has a big influence on goth, whether it's directly or indirectly, you know. So he has a band called the Vile Bunch, which is all the monsters from the beginning. But you're right there, they're kind of a even more twisted version of the Riverbottom Boys.
1: Welcome to my...
2: This scared the living hell out of me as a kid. Uh, now it's just kind of corny. I mean, it's great, <laughs> but it's kind of corny. I mean, he dances with a with like a mummy ghost. It's somewhat awkwardly. <laughs> so apparently, I was a coward
3: or a kid.
2: Yeah, that, that that too. Our backstage story is that Alice works for the devil.
3: <laughs> so, was there any sort of a, a moral panic around Alice Cooper's? Yes. There was
2: moral panic about him being on the Muppet Show. He's the narrative of this of this season. Mm-hmm. He's the booking that kind of sends a message. Um, the the booking that shakes things up a little bit. He's the last person you'd expect to see on the Muppet Show. So he was like the first person they had to get. Mm-hmm. He's not Jim's taste in music necessarily. Alice is like a real normal guy. Like I said, like when he got rich and famous after all this stuff, what did he do? He got into golf. He
3: opened up some sports bars It's like those uh, counterculture figures that retired, and moved up to Marin.
2: You know, he votes Republican because he doesn't want his taxes raised like he's just like a dude, which makes, I think, the, the creation of the persona of Alice Cooper all the more remarkable because, yeah, he was controversial. Like I guess, I mean, this is at well after he apparently bit the head head off a chicken on stage, right? Which everyone believed is true, just like everyone thinks Ozzy Osbourne bit the head off of a bat on stage.
3: Well, the other thing, we live in the age of social media and things being shared very quickly. But I have to imagine back in the 70s, word of mouth was doing most of the memetic work. Like that game of telephones going to wreak havoc. And not only did he bite that off of a chicken, but this person's version of the story is going to have him doing something very different with the corpse.
2: Kermit makes a very rare reference to another episode. Hey,
0: right, boy, it wasn't spooky like this when Julie Andrews did the show.
3: I think Julie Andrews is Kermit's happy place. William Tell in... His assistant
2: or his son or somebody. They're the next act is a William Tell act.
3: Wait, were the characters actually William Tell?
2: Yeah, I think they actually call him William Tell. Yeah, William Tell. And then and then the the oh it is his son because then they say Dave Goles is credited as Walter Tell. <laughs>
3: That's dark. I mean it's Dark either way, but for that to actually be them. They go on
2: stage and, and obviously William's a little shaky.
0: William Talak, William Talak on stage, you guys. Come on, move it, move it, move it. (laughs) Don't shout. it makes me nervous.
2: So then, Kermit makes an offhanded remark to Alice about how it must be great to be a rock star.
4: Oh, would you like to be a rock star? (laughs) Uh, uh, Well,
2: well, uh, yeah, sure, sure. Love to be a rock star. Well, then just sign this contract. (laughs) Contract?
4: Uh yes, I have a friend that runs a service,
2: and he produces a contract. So the the backstage is quite Faustian.
3: Oh yeah, that's the back. The backstage story is the story of Faust. At some point, Kermit invokes the name Faust directly. Yeah, he flat out says it to Gonzo. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> we'll get we'll get to how willing Gonzo is. <laughs> but there's
3: also there's a question that it raises too because I think Kermit tries to slide out by saying like yeah I would love to be a rock star but I'd also love to be an astronaut and Alice literally just says. Just scratch out the word rock star and you can put astronaut and it'll be fine. And I'm like, if that's the case, could he scratch out the word soul and put out put in a different payment?
2: No, that's non negotiable. So yeah, so this whole conversation and now while they're having this conversation about Kermit selling his soul to the devil, who's a friend of Alice's, he says. Arrows are flying <laughs> into the backstage from the William Tell bit that we don't see. There is a William Tell act on stage going horribly that we're not watching.
3: I'm sure that the audience got to see someone die that night. No, he's fine. It's not fine. I mean, once they pull that arrow out. Well, we'll see. I don't know. So, uh, so there's
2: all sorts of, so there's arrows flying. The arrow goes through the letter. It's, it's. It's actually pretty good effects on the le- on the um, normally you would do that by pull- by running the camera backwards mm. and pulling the arrow out and then running it backwards, but they were doing dialog and stuff. So I don't think they were recording dialog backwards. This ain't Twin Peaks. Mm. Kermit's like,
0: you must be kidding. Why? How can you guarantee that? And what must it cost? Ah, <laughs>
2: not a penny, just your soul. And he vanishes There's a lot of vanishing in this episode. It's mm-hmm. a lot of apparition. Then William and Walter Tell come off stage and um, Walter's got an arrow through his head.
0: <laughs> yeah. You just can't move when I'm shooting. I've told you that I was thousand time. Well, you know me, in one ear and out the other.
3: It's yeah, it's a
2: great joke. Best or worst William Tell act of all time? Probably someplace in the middle. It reminded me of Throne of Blood, the Kurosawa movie. That references for like two people. <laughs>
3: Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, here at Muppet Labs, where the future is being made today. Do
2: germs look like prom dresses?
3: So, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Timeline-wise, one of these things would have been influenced by the other. The bit about blowing up a virus is a full-on, like, episode plot point for an anime series in the 80s that I was a big fan of. And so I got weirdly nostalgic. But, also, does Beaker get paid? We've discussed this. Uh, I, I... But here's the thing, though. Maybe he gets college credit. The more I think about their arrangement, the more upsetting it gets. Now, some places grad students get paid. Oh yeah.
2: So uh, yeah, Bunsen uh, has invented Muppet Labs' new germ enlargener, and he uses it. And Beaker's going along with it. Beaker's a good showman, you know. He's like, "Oh, screw this microscope. We don't need this anymore." And he throws it over his shoulder. <laughs> they drop it this thing on this germ enlargener. Now I'm watching this with my wife, who is a bio a PhD bioorganic chemist. I can confirm that is not what a germ looks like. What happens, what basically erupts is like a a prom dress made of cellophane.
3: There's a joke in there somewhere. I'm missing it. It's probably not appropriate for the podcast.
2: It's a very weird looking thing that springs up, but it does not look like a germ. They come off stage and Kermit's like, Bunsen, that
0: that, 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 that germ better not be contagious.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So then we find that Gonzo the Great has discovered this contract that's still pinned to the wall with an arrow. And it sounds fantastic to him. <laughs> and Kermit even explains to him like, oh, no, that's Alice's contract. And this is where he name drops Faust.
0: Faust sold his soul to the devil and in return became very rich and very famous. And Alice says that this is that kind of a contract.
2: Really? Why do I
0: sign? <laughs>
2: he starts screaming for a pen.
0: <laughs> hey, give me a pen. Look, and I'll give you a chicken for a pen. I'll give you all my chickens for a pen sell my soul for a pen no I have other plans for
2: that but Gonzo of anybody on the show he'd be the first one to dive into a deal with the devil of course
3: Uh, he's the
2: the Muppet he's the Muppet show's Robert Johnson
3: maybe
2: no he's not at all
3: no 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 like someone from Electric Mayhem would be Robert Johnson I could see Dr. Teeth doing that but no 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 I I think someone else is actually (laughs) going to complete this contract before Gonzo does what's
2: this next thing
3: this is the one moment in the episode that I thought was kind of nightmare fuel Well, it's it's dream logic, really. Like, this is that weird sort of groggy, fuzzy around the edges. There are strange creatures coming after you, especially if you're a small child. You don't necessarily have the ability to articulate, either verbally or visually, what makes something scary. But you know that due to proximity and a certain unknowable aspect of the thing that it's it's real, and it's just a stalagmite complaining about a toothache, but the thing is, at some point, you realize that the ones you're looking at are actually teeth inside of the mouth of another stel- stalagmite, and that recursive aspect gives it a certain kind of dream logic. I've never
0: known a toothache this bad before. He's never known a toothache this bad before. <laughs> it's like having toothache all over my body. It's like having toothache all over his body. <laughs>
2: my kids thought this was funny (laughs) they just like the they were confused as was i as was my entire family as i'm sure was anybody who saw this ever but uh once it started doing the the jokes with the talking and that they repeat after me and they say what i'm gonna say before i say it like you know they found that they found that to be funny
0: and another thing and and another thing. thing i keep hearing voices And what's worse, the echo is often incorrect. And sometimes, and sometimes it says what I'm going to say
2: before I said it. I, I, this is weird. Yeah. But the, but the dialogue is funny though. It is. Now we have, despite all of the great things in this episode, I think this is the most famous moment of the episode is Sam the Eagle. Facing down Alice Cooper.
3: Because there's no fear in Sam's heart. There's only justice.
2: <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. You, sir, are a demented, sick, degenerate, barbaric, naughty, freckle. Why, thank
2: you. So he calls him naughty. That's one of Sam's favorite words is naughty, and it makes me a little uncomfortable.
3: Well, I mean, he's naughty by nature, not because he hates him.
2: <laughs> not because. Um, so then we actually see the cantina again
3: very briefly
2: fozzy's there like i believe fozzy's sitting in the cafeteria and he's complaining that the show's so crazy and then all the there's a bunch of whatnots at the table with them and they open their mouths and they all have fangs and he's like oh even here everything's crazy it this did create a very famous gif there is the where fozzy puts his hand up to his head at the end of it that's a that's a very po- popular fozzy gif now at the end of it fozzy does say you know, why can't something nice happen on the show tonight? And then in a stroke of comedic irony, we get a little cute green frog singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. So- Obviously from the Wizard of Oz. Weird. I,
3: it's it's a bit of a left turn, but I think I could see this being them trying to, like, throw a softball to any of the censors that are like, this is this episode's a little too much. Can we get something wholesome?
2: It's very wholesome. I think it's just meant to be in contrast, right? Mm-hmm. Fozzie says, let's do something nice, and they cut to something nice. Someday
4: I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me.
2: there's not much to say about it. It's Robin singing somewhere over the rainbow. I really don't know anything to say about it. Do you?
3: Uh, it was nice. Um, it makes me look forward to the rainbow connection. I love this UK spot. I didn't realize this was the UK spot. Love it, love it. I was really happy to see the return of "Think about this, folks."
2: Kermit's sitting at his desk and he comments about how spooky the show is tonight. And then a candle. It's basically he basically gets into like a poltergeist situation where you know his ca- the candle on his desk starts moving around. And yeah, you're right. He he blows the candle out and then does yeah does the uh, think about this, folks. Ch- I don't think they, they've only done that one other time. I think that was the pilot, wasn't it? Yeah, that was in one of those, one of the pilots. And uh, so they're just blowing air from off screen, I think. Mm. And then these like masked Muppets start popping up. This part, I think, is kind of scary.
3: It reminded the uh, Boogeyman song in The Nightmare Before Christmas. Like, I I just remember the image of him rolling dice and something about that reminded me of this a lot.
2: And they scare Kermit and Kermit eventually gives up and and runs away. And then, as soon as he runs away, the blue the mask comes down, and it's Blue Frackle, and they start singing "Once a Year Day."
0: This is my once a year day. Once a year day, felt the morning sun and knew that this was my once a year day. Once a year day, even got a kiss from you. I feel like
2: which is from the Broadway musical The Pajama Game for 1954. I really don't know what the song is about. But they sing it with joy.
3: So, because of my childhood, I just assumed that they were relating to being able to come out of your room once a year on Christmas.
2: In this in this case, Halloween.
3: I figure it's just, usually there's some sort of toil, and they get a break from it once a year.
2: The, the ghost comes in and joins them. It's just a bunch of the, the monsters that we've already seen, singing and doing a number. And then a go, the ghost that had danced with Alice and his number comes out, and... Thog comes out and starts dancing with the ghost. So I assume that means the ghost has to be the spirit of a famous actress. Because that's all the people Thog dances with. Pardon me, miss, but I've never done this with a
3: real live girl. But this was a lot of fun. I, I didn't realize it was the UK spot when I watched it.
2: Do you know what's funny? In the Vincent Price episode, the UK spot took place in the same location and was those two ghosts singing like a beetle song mm. that was the uk spot on that one this episode feels like a season three remake of the vincent price episode
3: i could see that there are a lot of similar beats cooper seems more sinister though
2: he is recruiting for for lucifer mm. that's fairly sinister uh what did you think about this next bit nick with beaky the bird
3: all right, so Big Bird is canonically four years old, right? I think so, yeah. All right, so the female gremlin from Gremlins 2 isn't more than like a day or two old. So the, the age difference... How did those two have a kid? <laughs>
2: it's a very disturbing-looking creature, Beaky.
3: A very affectionate, disturbing-looking creature called Beaky.
2: So uh, we, we fade up on Alice, and he sings a song called You and Me, which is from his 1977 album Lace and Whiskey. When
1: I get home from work, I want to wrap myself around I want to take you, squeeze you till the passion starts to rise. I'd like to take you to heaven that would make my day complete.
2: And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a love song, right?
3: Oh, he, he seemed very affectionate toward uh, the bird gremlin.
2: Their name is Beaky. Okay. Uh, I believe Beaky will show up again, so be ready.
3: That raises a lot of questions.
2: So it does. It doesn't make much sense. Um, There's a couple of things that don't make sense in these episodes tonight, but I'm okay with that. Um, And he sings this very affectionate kind of there's a couple of lyrics in there that are a little provocative. And he's singing and they're like, what? what they're like lounging on the floor of his dressing room almost.
3: He's got a full on Hugh Hefner smoking jacket going on.
2: It's like a harem, but he's only got one woman
3: there. Well, something tells me that Beaky wouldn't be good at cheering. But you and me ain't
1: no movie star is what we are we share a bed some love and
2: tv and uh so he gets the end of the song it's it's a nice, it's a nice song scooter pops in <laughs> and is and this oh and and the the bird does sing though with louise gold's voice um and he's stroking the the bird's feathers and now that you've mentioned the female gremlin i can't unsee it you're absolutely right um but he's very affectionate towards this bird Scooter pops in and says, Miss Piggy, we need you on Pigs in Space. And then all of a sudden, Beaky starts talking with Frank Gauze's voice. And it's like, "Okay."
1: I'll be right there. Pardon moi, Alissimo.
2: It stands up, catches a look of itself in the mirror and goes, So the whole time it's been Piggy, (laughs) who has made the sale, has sold her soul to the devil for fame and fortune, but did not know that she would be turned into this abomination. I mean, because of it,
3: she's altering the deal and he should pray that she doesn't alter it further.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you know, you know, that's going to stay in. Oh, yeah. Good work. Also, like, I I will say this. I didn't think you could back out of deals with the devil.
3: I mean, most people probably can't. Miss Piggy is. Doesn't want to get high Pretty much.
2: This is one of his like, you know, rock power ballad type songs, right? Um, Or just like, you know, it's it's a softer song from him. And uh, I like that they gave it a punchline.
1: Yeah. Well, boss, no, no, I didn't make a sale. Uh, Listen, do I get any commission on hourly rental?
4: Last saw the spaceship swine track. Captain Link Hogthrob was suffering from a
0: mysterious space disease.
2: I wrote down this is this the prequel to Tron. Yeah. Link is suffering from a space disease. <laughs> That's just all it says. Space disease.
3: There was a nineties late night talk show with a digitized head, and I can't remember what it's called. And he goes on MTV. Max Headroom? That might have been it, yeah.
2: Max Hedrum was the character and he was he also did commercials and stuff. Mm. He shows up in Back to the Future 2. It was actually a real guy. They just did some digital stuff
3: to him. Uh, one of the things that did stick out to me in this, actually, wait, this episode came out in seventy eight. Eight. Mm-hmm. I was waiting for him to go. Full, I was waiting for Link to go full John Hurt because the way he was sort of like reclining in that chair and buffing his chest. Yeah, you are waiting for the t- chest burster. Yeah, I was. It would be on brand for the episode, kind of.
2: So Link is suffering some, from some sort of space disease. Now this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Strange Pork has two solutions to the problem. One, they can give him electroshock therapy. Seems drastic. Two, Piggy can give him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Now, are they saying he's in
3: cardiac arrest? That was, like, hyperventilating? I don't know. Past psychological treatments have been questionable at times.
2: She's, there's no way she's giving him mouth-to-mouth. So, so she thinks. So they plug him into the th- She's like, what did she say? She's like, never mind, let's plug him in. And he turns into... They, they they jolt some electricity, electricity through his body. He comes to, he wakes up, but now he's basically um, a sketch of himself, an outline. How would you describe it?
3: Yeah, no, he's like, he's a, it's almost like a, a negative image of himself, except there's no, it doesn't apply to the rest of the screen, but it's something that I would have seen in a lot of 80s music videos.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a neat little visual trick. I think there's a very funny line though, where Piggy's like,
1: uh, <laughs> interesting.
4: No, I think he looks
2: weird. And Strange Force, like, no, I mean, he doesn't look interesting. He looks weird. Which I would say are the same thing. You know, this is not okay. Link kind of leans in and tries to get a little kissy-poo from Piggy. And their snouts do touch. And I guess that's how pigs kiss. And Although she is being very sweet to Link in this. Up until the point he tries to kiss her. She's like, wait, what are you doing? And apparently this Tron sickness is uh, contagious. Wait, is this, is this Bunsen Honeydew's disease?
3: Oh, they're geniuses. I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend that that was intentional, but that yeah,
2: it might be. They're geniuses. So, uh, so anyway, so eventually, of course, Strangeport gets the disease as well, and they're all running around like mad people. Uh, these little outlines, and then all of a sudden, the the ship starts to change, and the same thing happens to the ship, and and it's like turns purple lines and stuff, and it just goes psychedelic, and you know, just reminded me of Tron. So then we get our finale where Alice comes out and sings one of his biggest tunes School's Out I've always found it funny that you had this guy like you know with all this devil stuff and everything it was never it was always tongue in cheek but he's with all the satanic stuff and then his like big hit song is about yay school's out Basically just performs it while like getting rowdy with a bunch of monsters. You got one of the mutations who's like wearing a sweater. Timmy Monster, Sweetums, uh, Dog Lion, and then Mean Mama who's dressed up as a cheerleader. Mm. With a big M on her uh, costume. Um, and they sing School's Out. Uh, and eventually, and at one point, uh, Alice rips off his graduation gown and he's wearing like a red devil leotard with a devil tail. Which got a reaction from my family. <laughs> Then <laughs> he just like all of a sudden he's in his like pajamas almost there wasn't the staging on this was a little like casualish. i don't know how to
3: put it so there's a movie i want to say it came out in 91 92 called the class of 1999 which was this ridiculous yes bad like i think it was riff on the substitute or something it had this '90s dystopian setting with a bunch of high schoolers that were all in games and fighting each other. And production quality-wise, it looked a lot like this set. <laughs> I you just see. I needed to, to see like peroxide blonde Stacy Keach and a very scary Pam Greer, and we would have been fine. I've never seen that movie, but you're selling me.
2: <laughs> it Stacy Kee- Stacy Keach and Pam Greer, you're selling me.
3: Like Stacy Keach and Pam Greer in the mid '90s.
2: Yeah, they made a lot of bad movies, (laughs) but they've both made a lot of bad movies. Kermit brings out Alice to say goodnight, and he brings out all the monsters with him, all the, you know, it's it's a big episode for walk-around puppets. And then Gonzo's voice comes out of nowhere and declares himself the voice of doom. This is the voice
1: of
0: doom! (laughs) Sounds more like the voice of Gonzo!
2: And then Gonzo magically appears, much like Alice does. And he's got a long piece of paper, and Kermit's like, is that the contract? He's like, nope, it's worse. It's the special effects bill.
3: For a second, I thought it was a
2: CVS receipt. <laughs> now, I thought this was funny. My kids, no reaction whatsoever. Don't think they quite understood what Gonzo meant.
3: They don't share their dad's trauma.
2: And then at the very end, Statler and Waldorf make a James Fenimore Cooper joke, you know, for kids.
0: So that was Alice Cooper. You should see his sister, James Fenimore.
3: Yeah, I know who that is.
2: James Fenimore Cooper is the author of like last of the Mohicans. Okay. He's uh, kind of the, f- he's considered one of the first American novelists. I believe he was the, the biggest selling American novelist of all time for quite some time. He wrote a series of books called the leather stocking tales. It's five books. Last of the Mohicans is one of them. It's all about the same character, hmm. man. Those books are hard to read. <laughs> I've tried. I believe it. Um, they're just, they're, they're drier than hell. Great episode. This was a great episode. I've conquered it, Nick. (laughs) I'm proud of you. I've conquered the Alice Cooper episode of The Muppet Show. Thank you. I no longer fear it. In fact, I enjoy it. Now let's wait for the Liza Minnelli episode and see if I can get through that one. Loretta Lynn is obviously a huge star, but tell me more about her.
3: So Loretta Lynn was born Loretta Webb. On April fourteenth, nineteen thirty-two, in Butcher Hollow County, er, in Butcher Hollow, Kentucky, to Clara Marie and Melvin Theodore Ted Webb.
2: Did you say Butcher Hollow?
3: Butcher Hollow, Kentucky. Wow, which is a name. Nice. That is one of the most American names. She lost her dad pretty early to black lung at fifteen years old. She would get married to Oliver Vanetta Lynn, better known as Doolittle Lynn. She only met him a month earlier. I'm not gonna say a lot about that, because there's a lot I don't know about what the context would have been. But they would move from Kentucky to Custer, Washington, when she was seven months pregnant with her first of six children. Doolittle she would be married to Doolittle for the rest of his life, which would be another sixty years. I think he would pass in ninety-six. And we'll, we'll we'll touch a little bit more on their relationship as as this goes on. But one of the things one of the positive things she said about him and I'm just going to call their relationship archetypally complicated um, was that he always encouraged her to sing and to do things. He bought her her first guitar. She learned on that while he was doing a lot of his production. Otherwise she has been performing for a long time. So anyone who's listening, who is a Loretta Lynn fan, I don't mean any disrespect, but I'm going to glance over a lot of her singles and or records because she's got a lot of singles and or records. Her first, Release was I'm a Honky Tonk Girl, uh, which was released in February 1960. She would be a big part of the Nashville scene for a good chunk of the 1960s. She had her first number one hit uh, in
4: 1967. No, don't come-
3: A lot of her songs would focus on women's issues and themes about husbands that cheated on their wives and or mistresses that were a little persistent. So maybe she was a little 90s R&B before 90s R&B was a thing.
2: (laughs) That's a very strong tradition in country music, too. (laughs) Women singing about men being no good still do it today. I believe it. And they ain't wrong.
3: She released an autobiography in 1976 titled Coal Miner's Daughter. This would be made into an Academy Award-winning film with the same name in 1980, starring Sissy Spacek and Tommy Lee Jones. I can't imagine him young. I, I don't think I've seen... Oh, you never seen an old Tommy Lee Jones movie? No. I, I don't think I'm, I'm aware of him before the 90s. Granted, I wasn't aware of much before the 90s, but... He always looks like a grown-up. I'll say that. <laughs> he never <laughs> looks like young. <laughs> in 1973, she had a song entitled Rated X, which peaked at number one. And then- another song in 1975 called The Pill, which was one of the first songs to discuss birth control.
4: All these years I've stayed at home, while you had all your fun. And every year that's gone by, another baby's come. There's a gonna be some changes made, right here on Nursery Hill. you set this chicken your last time, cause now I've got the pill.
3: She would form a professional partnership with Conway Twitty in 1971, and they would have five consecutive number one hits between 1971 and 1975. For four consecutive years, uh, between 72 and 75, they were named the Vocal Duo of the Year by the Country Music Association. And they, they won another string of awards from a number of different entities. They, they were a very successful partnership. In 1993, Lynn would team up with Dolly Parton and Tammy Winnett, I know one of those two names, to form a group called the Honky Tonk Angels.
2: It's what we call a supergroup.
3: The CD would peak at number six on the Billboard country charts, and they charted with a single called Silver Threads and Golden Needles. In 2002, she had released her second autobiography called Still Woman Enough, and it became her second New York Times bestseller, peaking in the top ten. She would also publish a cookbook in 2004 called You're Cookin' It Country. Oh, because of the song. The pun, you see. Now, there there were allegations of spousal abuse from Doolittle. Uh, of course, by her own account, every time she got hit, she hit him back twice. Right. She is still alive, and I believe still performing, although she has some health, had some health problems. She had a stroke at her home in 2017, and she had to cancel all—she's still touring. I don't—well, I mean, I hope she's not touring right now. Right. She's a bit of a complicated John Cleese-esque— Political figure, uh, she did support Trump. Yeah, she also was the first solo female country artist to perform at the White House. She was invited by Nixon, and she would also return to perform during the administrations of Carter, Reagan, Bush one, and Bush two. And she she doesn't really talk about politics a lot. The Muppet Show episode three hundred eight, featuring guest star Loretta Lynn, produced between April fourth and April seventh, nineteen seventy eight. And it would premiere in the UK on April 23rd, 1978. And it would make it to the States October 26th of the same year. It was directed by Peter Harris and written by our favorite guys.
2: We do have some new faces. The babies.
3: So I wanted to talk about that. And I, I didn't want to jump the gun too much.
2: Well, I wanted to list them off because they will come back. Was that Frank? Oh, we'll get what do you mean, the puppet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay. We do have the babies. They will come back several times. They were designed by Calista Henderson. Um, But yeah, they're a group of, um, I would say, disconcerting looking infants. Nightmare fuel. Yeah, they are. They really are. I wasn't going to say it.
3: There was a killer baby. This is the
2: one that provides the creepier images than the Alice Cooper one.
3: We're going to get to that sketch and I'll I'll go into it in full there. But yeah, no, that was all kinds of unsettling.
0: Loretta Lynn? Loretta Lynn? 15 seconds to curtain, Miss Lynn.
4: You said you'd meet me here at the train station. Well, here I am. Terrific. Where's the theater?
0: Oh, uh, bad news, Loretta. What? We can't use the Muppet Theater tonight. Well, what are we going to use then? <laughs> Platform 2.
2: Platform 2. Platform 2. Yeah, so the entire Muppet Show is going to be held at a train station tonight.
3: Which I like as a concept for them to just upend everything about it and still roll with it. Because that keeps on theme for the Muppets in general, while also bringing in the appropriate amount of chaos. So they reshoot the Muppet Show theme. It's it's all done <laughs> very rustic. I think it's a little off-key.
2: Oh, yeah, it's like they did the art with crayons.
1: The
0: Hope we do it right. It's time to get things started Put on I'm the most sensational,
1: inspirational. This is sort of railroad station. This is what we call the going to be terrific, Kermit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they do their little chorus lines, but they do them live. It's a really fun way to open the show.
3: And it's, it catches you way out of left field, because I, I wasn't expecting yeah. that going in. can't remember the last time they messed with the theme,
2: right? I remember them, they've messed with the closing music before.
3: I think the episode would have been weaker if they hadn't made that particular change. They, they, when they go all in on something, they go all in. Mm-hmm. So Kermit comes in to introduce the show, explaining that...
0: Uh, you see, the regular Muppet Theater is being fumigated, and, uh, and uh, we had to find another place to do the show. And so the only other place that we could find was, a uh... Kermit, Kermit. What is it, going oh, better hurry. There's one coming now. Uh, yeah, yeah, the only other place that we could find... From
3: there we go into her first number, where she is backed by Lubbock Lou and his jug huggers, to sing a song called You're Looking at Country. Uh, this was written by Lynn. It's from her 1971 album, You're Looking at Country. Just in case you, you didn't get the theme.
4: A girl would call a country mom to find her a good old slow talk and country boy. I said, a country boy, I'm about as old as I can be. So I hope you like what you see. Cause if you're looking at me, you're looking at country.
2: This is the one that reminded me of the movie Nashville. So it's the combination of the dress, the skinny ass microphone but also it sounds gonna sound really strange the way she holds the microphone cable i could see that how she kind of cradles it in her hand and it's it's kind of the way she holds the microphone cable is a hundred percent like like to me i was like oh yeah that's a country star
3: (laughs) i don't know why i i lack the frame of reference but i can understand that
2: yeah it just that was the detail where i was like yeah okay But yeah, she just belts out this big old country song. Yeah,
3: she's got a really strong voice.
4: Well, this your country is a little green But there's a whole lot of country that you ain't seen I'll show you around If you show me a wedding band I said a wedding band When it comes to love Well, I know about that Country folks all know where it's at If you're looking at me Yeah, tell them You're looking looking at country. country
3: From, from there we go. So, why are Statler and Waldorf here? Like, I'm, I'm usually happy to see them, but...
2: They hate it so much, but they can't stay away, Nick.
3: Are they Bruce Willis in the Sixth cent? Do they not realize they're dead? Is that what's going on? I don't think they're
2: dead. I think they're addicts. <laughs> Fair. Because they're the ones... They're the only ones that aren't supposed to be there. They can just... Not I mean I'm talking not on this episode, I'm talking every episode. They could just not come, but they do. The others have work to do. The others are getting paid, theoretically. The others have acts on. They don't have any of that. They don't have to be there. They're not part of the show.
3: I mean, every once in a while Statler decides to try to work his way backstage to drop off plants to the objects of his affection, but you know, you do it one time. <laughs> it's all it takes. It grows like kudzu. You
2: do it one time and a guy can't live it down. You bring one killer plant. Uh, yeah style and order for sitting on a couple of lot luggage a piece of luggage I'm
3: reminded of how long their legs are and how weird that is <laughs> yeah yeah it's like they're actually kind of tall
2: well I mean they're grown-ups I guess I don't know yeah. yeah
3: but like you compare their legs to like gonzos where listen gonzo's gonna get a complex if we keep talking about him like this he's already got a complex chad he's got a number of dude short
2: okay dude short what are you gonna do he's got a lot of heart <laughs> And in this episode, a lot of enthusiasm.
3: <laughs> yeah. He's, he's helping. He's helping. Kermit's decided that the baggage room is going to have to do for an office, but it's not really going so great. Every time a train goes by... A soothing, relaxing, vibrating home. Everything's going to shake, including his coffee. And at some point, a porter just comes in and rolls his desk away. Um, and Gonzo, trying to help, promises to help Kermit find a quieter location. The the weird John Candy road movie buddy premise is our backstage story for this episode more than anything else. With Gonzo playing John Candy in this case, obviously. But
2: Yeah, they've teamed up Kermit and Gonzo for this one. Which we haven't really seen.
3: Like, we've seen Kermit be mean to Not Gonzo. but I mean, normally this would
2: be Fozzie's job. For some reason, this week it's Gonzo.
3: From here, can we can we talk about Baskerville?
2: Yeah. Um no, I don't think we're are we there. Are we there yet?
3: I thought well, he's not talking yet, but he's in Miss Piggy's Yes uh solo number. The Baskerville thing is
2: weird. Do they finally let him go and he got a job at a train station?
3: I'm guessing that's what happens. I'm guessing Rolf has a really hard time meeting his eyes at this point. Like in some darker timeline there is a story about obsession and the jilted former performance partner who just Be like Amadeus.
2: It's like Amadeus, but with Rolf and Baskerville.
3: In this bit, we, we come in on Miss Piggy waiting for a phone call, and she sings a solo called All Alone. But because it's a train station, and there's no such thing as personal space at a train station, uh, she's continually interrupted by passengers who are running to catch trains.
1: All alone. I'm so all alone. Oh, train on track one! Track one! I oh, heard him. Mind? by the telephone
3: piggy just gives up by the time the phone does ring because you know why why bother she was she was done with it yeah she was done with it all alone was a 1924 irving berlin song it was also famously covered by sinatra
2: so um this is just funny this is kind of an extended wayne and wanda mm-hmm. but yeah you saw the two puppets that were in the crowd jim and frank yeah the German Frank puppets are in the crowd.
3: But we, we still don't have that band back.
2: No, we're never going to see that again. But this is the first time we've seen the Frank puppet since season one.
0: Here is a Muppet news flash. Oh, excuse me. Uh, how much is a pig news here? Well, <laughs> uh, well, you get out of here. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Deliveries of letters and parcels may be delayed as a result of a strike by mailbag handlers due to take effect immediately. <sighs>
3: The newsman. (laughs) I hope the newsman has a happy home life. I hope he's got a loving wife and kids that adore him who want to go into journalism to be like their dad as he softly and quietly urges them to find another job. He has found himself in a small newsstand, the kind that would make Asimov very jealous.
2: Yeah, a a, a news kiosk, right? A newspaper kiosk.
3: Uh, And he's reporting on a strike amongst mail carriers. Um, But... The punchline, of course, is that airmail is being delivered as normal, and th- knowing the newsman, he probably thought that getting out of the Muppet Theater meant his, his chances were going to be a little bit better. He probably should have known better. <laughs> Gonzo, uh, being ever ever so helpful, has decided that he's found the perfect place for Kermit's office. Um, and he assures him that it's the caboose of an out of service train, which slight tangent. I've seen a number of like personal riding grottos that are just made out of modified old train carts. And I'm never going to be able to afford that, but it's nice to dream.
2: It's not, it is nice,
3: but it only looked like it was out of service, uh, <laughs> as Kermit and Gonzo find themselves headed to Pittsburgh and poor Kermit was just, just trying to find a spot to work.
0: Scooter, take over for me. I'll be back as soon as I can. This is terrible. I'll say we have to change trains at Altoona.
3: Where is Altoona?
2: It's a funny word. It's in Pennsylvania as well. I guess I should learn these things since I live there now.
3: It's okay. American education doesn't focus geography so much, which is why our European friends laugh at us. Before they leave, Kermit leaves Scooter in charge because...
2: I mean, because Scooter was there.
3: Scooter was there, and also Scooter's... Been following him around, so he's going to know what's supposed to be going on with the show.
2: Listen, I don't trust this little shit, but he's the, but But I think he's your best call. Like you said, he's just, he sees the sausage get made more than anybody else does.
3: Yeah. Although I will say Fozzie has experience, though. Fozzie does have experience, but Fozzie has experience in the theater.
2: No, but he has experience running the show. Remember, he's programmed the show before, he's written the show before. Mm. He's got more experience doing this in Scooter, but. He wasn't there. He wasn't there. <laughs> Scooter was right there. He's like, hey, Scooter, you're in charge. I wonder if they'll find a way to get back.
3: Like I said, John Candy Road movie. But Scooter decides that, or he doesn't decide. He knows that it's time to put on Fozzie as his first act. And Fozzie says he's not ready yet. And Scooter, in a moment that might have been genuinely supportive.
0: It's all right, Fozzie. Just tell him the joke you told me. The one about the electricians and the polar bear. You like the one about the electricians and the polar bear? It's a masterpiece. I laughed for days introduce me
3: we've seen scooter lie like this before but we have no way of really knowing because as soon as Fozzie goes on a train passes and it it leaves just in time for him to hit the punchline
0: did you hear about the electricians and the polar bear Well, see first of all the polar bear comes to... no but the wallpaper tasted terrific he said the polar bear said that. You see, if he didn't, you're
3: like, oh. Part of me wants to believe that this is probably the funniest joke that Fozzie ever tells, and we're never going to know.
2: I mean, Scooter called it legendary. Probably the greatest joke Fozzie ever told. At least until the Muppet movie. The Muppet movie, he's got some good ones. <laughs> but yeah, we missed it.
3: I don't know why, of all the sketches they could have brought on, they decided to go without the dance at a train station. <laughs>
0: You know, for a teenager, you're very mature. Well, I've been shaving for over a year now. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I cut myself both times.
3: I think that's why. I think you nailed it. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, two homeless guys wander into the sketch. Neither of them have ever seen people, or at least pigs, dancing at a railroad depot before.
2: They get a really good line
3: in here. <laughs> they're, they're sort of operating as our chorus. For the bit
2: yeah they're they're kind of commenting on the quality of the material of the dancers which is not very good
3: i feel like they're modeled after famous comedians but i can't i can't place it like a laurel and hardy kind of thing there's
2: a little laurel and hardy or a little abbott and costello there hmm. i think but i mean it's frank is the tall one i don't remember who plays the short one but at the end where he's like
0: these folks are dancing and telling jokes well they're dancing <laughs>
2: I thought that was great. It is. His accent kind of uh, made him sound like, because it was Frank's, kind of sounds like Ma Otter. Mm-hmm. What would have been Ma Otter. This next part's the UK spot, which is crazy to me.
3: Yeah, no, this is tied into the resolution of the episode. Why is this their UK spot?
2: Uh, yeah, I think if you cut it, you could still, the story's still there. Yeah. Because the phone call later, though.
3: So our UK spot, Scooter wanders in and talks to, do we call it one of Gonzo's chickens? Or is she her own chicken?
2: She's her own chicken, damn it. Now she's in a box right now. (laughs) I don't
3: know. So Scooter wanders in and talks to the strong, independent chicken that happens to be sitting inside of a crate, and... He mentions that he wonders how Kermit Kermit and Gonzo are doing. He doesn't seem particularly stressed to be hosting the show, but he's just kind of curious. He's kind of concerned. He's only 80% sociopath. Well,
2: sociopaths don't necessarily get all shaken, right? They're pretty cool under
3: fire. That is true. So Gonzo starts trying to sing to cheer Kermit up and Kermit. So there's something that happens with people that know that they've irritated you and decide that they want to cheer you up because you're upset. You're not wrong about the John Candy thing. Yeah. This is sweet, though. It is. They sing a song called Sentimental Journey.
0: Gonna take a sentimental journey. I don't believe this. He's gonna sing? Gonna make a sentimental journey to renew old
3: memories.
0: Forget about renewing your memories. Worry about renewing your contract.
3: As they try to make their way back to the station via hand car. Sentimental Journey is a song that was written by Bud Green, Les Brown, and Ben Horner in 1944. It was a number one hit for Doris Day in 1945.
2: Gonzo starts, yeah, at first Kermit's like giving him crap for it. Mm -hmm. Can't believe he's singing, and and then eventually, but I think, and then it really lifts off when Kermit starts singing with him. Mm -hmm. Seven! Seven!
0: That's the time we leave at seven! Seven! I'll be waiting up for heaven! Take it! counting every mile of railroad
2: track oh i'm sorry big finish eventually gonzo's enthusiasm gets a hold of kermit and kermit sings along so you figure the piston in the middle is is their their hands are just like glued to it right mm-hmm. and then the piston in the middle is just moving up and down i was i, I spent the whole thing watching how they were doing the them pushing the cart <laughs> i was like oh i should probably pay attention to the song
1: Going, I right. this well,
2: okay Here we go I think as we go on we'll see you can do it without it mm-hmm. but it's definitely better with this in
3: the setup stronger From there we get to see Baskerville again not only do we get to see him he gets to talk. Yeah, Jerry Nelson. He stops by and asks Scooter how the show's going. And uh, Scooter informs him of Winky Pinkerton, the bird impressionist. Who's a penguin? (laughs) Who's a penguin? (laughs) That's the joke. A penguin Pinkerton is terrifying, but Pinkertons in general are kind of rough. But yeah, they're awful. They're
2: awful. But but I love the joke of these the penguin doing bird impressions. What they have in this episode is Baskerville is playing someone who works at the train station who has never met the Muppets before.
3: Are they trying to insinuate that he hasn't met them before?
2: He's kind of like, oh, it's good to have you guys here at the train station. I don't think there's any implication. I don't think there's any insinuation that like Baskerville.
3: What if Baskerville is how they got the gig at the train station? They just needed a location or else like I can call in a favor.
2: Yeah. Remember that guy we fired last week? <laughs> He
3: still loves us.
2: Maybe Baskerville, but because Baskerville's gotten considerably less time on, this is his second job. <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. Cause the scene between him and Scooter feels like Baskerville's playing a character mm. of guy at train station. But I think we could, I think we can work it so that it's still canon wise that uh, Baskerville is
3: moonlighting at the train
2: station. <laughs> I, I did laugh at the penguin though.
3: From there, our guest star returns with just, dogs. Some familiar dogs, some less familiar dogs. But she sings a song called Oh Lonesome Me. Uh, It was written by Don Gibson in 1958 and recorded by Don Gibson and Chet Atkins.
1: Oh
0: Lonesome Me I bet she's not like me She's out in fancy free Flirting with the boys with all her charms But I still love her so Brother, don't you know? I'd welcome her right back here in
3: my arms. It topped country charts in 58 for eight non-consecutive weeks, and it was Don Gibson's only top ten hit. Its B-side, a song called I Can't Stop Loving You, became a standard.
4: Made oh,
3: yes, it's pretty straightforward
2: she does do some howling at the end which i thought was funny
3: yeah i, I think she's a very and we're I, I feel like we're seeing the the inverse of this less as, as the show goes on but she is a very game guest star like anytime she's on screen she's completely comfortable in her skin and she's doing a solid job it wasn't my favorite number the with me being of two minds on this my musical tastes don't run to to where she is, but at the same time, there's still an understanding and appreciation of her technical pro- proficiency and her skill, right? Like, there's nothing against her or anything like that. It's just, this is an episode that I think is going to be far more enjoyed by people that this kind of thing does appeal to and even then the concept is still solid and it's fun but i don't know i think this one's just i don't think this one makes any of my lists at the end of the season
2: listen you can enjoy the backstage story and you can enjoy the high concept and not enjoy the music
3: yeah
2: i was higher on the on the performances but i didn't like it's not my type of music either
3: Mm. and as as i say that like I, me, it not being for me doesn't make it bad.
2: No, of course. No, of course. Like, I mean, I've never owned an Alice Cooper album,
3: hmm.
2: you know, but his style of music is at least closer to the stuff I like. Right.
4: Arriving now on track, track two, two Veterinarians hospital. hospital.
0: The continuing story
4: of a quack that's gone to the dogs.
0: Here's your next patient, Dr. Bob. He's a conductor. Well, he's not getting any symphony from me.
3: Can we stop for a second and just talk about the logistics of being a random person at a train station in 1978 and looking over and seeing a dog and a pig <laughs> over an operating table?
2: It might be unsettling.
3: There's plenty of horror that takes place at or around trains and train stations. And if I'm walking home from work or walking to the station from work and sleep deprived, I look over and I see a dog and a pig. Not chowing down on a human body but just sort of dissecting it so they can figure out how it works i'm not gonna know what to do with that
2: kind of like that scene in the shining
3: yes <laughs> i'm trying to think of which one you're talking about
2: pay attention here to the voice of the conductor that's being operated upon that is steve Whitmire. that'll be a, a a voice that uh will be getting more and more prevalent now as as he's getting starting to get some speaking roles
0: All <laughs> see what i mean <laughs> Dr. Bob, that's all he ever says. Well, he must have a one-track mind. (laughs) (laughs) That's your second track joke, Dr. Bob. So what? Who keeps track? (laughs) (laughs) That's three. Well, it's too late to change. You can't teach an old dog new tracks.
2: See, so now, see, here it makes sense. So now we come in and Gonzo and Kermit are using the handcart. So, like, if you didn't have the UK spot, you would just cut to them on the handcart.
3: But that's still, like, this still feels like a second act scene.
2: It does, I'm not saying it doesn't.
3: It's it's kind of got that classic joke set up where one person's telling someone else to...
0: But, but, but Kermit? Listen, just keep pumping. We gotta get up to the train station. But Kermit, it's (sighs) important. Okay, Gonzo, what is it? Well, there's a light up ahead. Well, good, maybe that's a train station. No, that's a train.
3: But it turns out Gonzo is actually doing right this time and trying to warn Kermit of an oncoming train. And Kermit, fueled by adrenaline and... The purest sort of panic starts deciding to push in the other way. The most primal of all fears. Getting hit by a train as a frog. Yes.
2: And you can even see like the the, what's got to be like a circular, like kind of a background Mm. that they're using. You can see it kind of grind to a halt and then start moving the other direction. (laughs) But yeah, pretty fun. It doesn't go well for them, it turns out.
3: I mean, they don't die. So for anyone that's listening and worried about that.
2: That's true. Kermit and Gonzo don't die that's that's it's good to make sure people know that going into this
3: so this next one i need to look this up because i don't know if this is a real country and this is important
2: it it, it it is this is uh this i wrote this is a little problematic it's ethiopia
3: interesting
2: abyssinia is ethiopia
0: three escaped chickens broke into the railroad telegraph office today and the chickens began pecking away at the morse key uh, they were later recaptured, but not before they had declared war on Abyssinia.
2: So, yeah, and it's a spear. Which is probably um, historically somewhat accurate, but also fairly problematic in its implications.
3: Yeah, it's.
2: He makes a joke about. He, th- he makes a joke about. He makes a funny joke, too. It's a funny joke about the chicken doing Morse code that accidentally starts a war.
3: The only way to win the war games is not to play, but I also feel like the newsman is. Very much at the end of his wits on this one, because he's like, I'm tired of these trains, these people.
2: But yeah, I I think the and then when he says, yeah, that they declared war on uh, Abyssinia, Abyssinia is another name for um, the country of Ethiopia. So and then a, a giant. All I can call is like a Zulu type spear lands on his desk through his desk. And so the implication is they've declared war with an African nation.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So it's a that's it's a little. I don't like said I don't think it's anything mean. I just think it's they don't
3: go too far into the paint, but no, it's just a little, just a little tone deaf. Hmm. I would say it's one of those things that the sketch itself, you blink and you'll miss it. Yeah. This
2: next sketch, however, you will not miss. It's also very funny.
3: This was a this was a very tidy one. It felt a little Sesame Street, but not in a bad way.
0: And the And Next thing on the show is supposed to be the rhyming song, the rhyming song. Yeah. yeah. But we're not ready for the rhyming song. I know we're not ready for the rhyming song. Whoa, what's on now? Oh, nothing. Okay, everybody, the rhyming song.
3: But without Kermit there to, to lead it, they're all just sort of... Well, they don't know it. Link didn't seem distressed at all.
2: Link had no idea what was happening.
3: I feel like Link's... Link
2: just gets kind of dragged on stage.
3: I feel like he's got a flask of scotch tucked into that neckerchief.
2: Yeah, so Scooter, Annie Sue, Link, and Fozzie do a song called The Rhyming Song, but of course, since they haven't rehearsed, none of it rhymes. Let's
0: all sing the rhyming song, the rhyming song, the rhyming song. Let's take turns and rhyme together, the rhyming song i was hungry now i'm not the rhyming song the rhyming song because i ate some beans and grapes the rhyming
2: song. funny enough the song was written for this is one of the songs that was like written for the show frank oz is credited as a co-writer on it along with larry grossman who was one of the music consultants on the show yeah it's just a it's just a, it's a fun bit. i like the end though when Fozzie's like let's just jump up and down and get out of here <laughs> but they do it cuz there's nothing else going on there's nothing on stage and they're like we got to do the rhyming songs like we don't know the rhyming song we're not we're not prepared i guess they just haven't rehearsed it
3: yeah but this the way this is set up and the way that the the payoff set every few seconds this seems like something that they would perform on stage at a later date if they hadn't done it earlier yeah but they blew it
0: the rhyming song the rhyming song there's
3: no hot water in my hotel well no i mean with with the rhymes as they are uh muppet oh yeah i could see them doing that
2: like you say it does start kind of sesame street because it's called the rhyming song but then it it turns into the muppets because they just do a terrible job of it because you're not going to learn about rhyming from this
0: Song. Let's all jump up and down and wave our arms and get off the stage. Rhyming song, rhyming song, rhyming song. 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 song.
1: song. Riding... What are you, you doing? Don't so you know? You. Get the foam scooter and the ball. And in the rhyming
0: song, huh? They're really getting desperate. Hmm. Desperation's a good sign. Soon they may panic and run away.
3: We then cut to Scooter grabbing a call from Kermit letting him know that he and Gonzo were in fact hit by that train, <laughs> but somehow didn't die.
2: Well, we're going to find out later. It's not quite accurate.
3: <laughs> but while he's on the phone, Loretta approaches and asks about the closing number, and particularly about the scenery. And the thing is, without scenery, she's like, I don't know if this can go on. If the scenery is bad, she can work with that, which is good because Fozzie created the scenery. Yeah,
2: <laughs> with the... Uh crayons and some cardboard it looks like he
3: he did his that's best That's not fair.
2: It's way better than I could do on such short notice. <laughs> yes, it looks it's very well proportioned. Like it's it actually looks really good. <laughs> it's one of those things where you have talented people making something that is supposed to be sub That's supposed to be like bad, mm-hmm.
3: but they can't make it too bad, <laughs> you know. They have to be able to know what things are.
2: Well, no, I like you could I could see this being just a normal set, like just kind of abstract, but I like I couldn't make that. But, yes, Fozzie's made the sets with, like, crayon and and, and scissors. I I like this uh, little slam on Kermit, though.
0: Okay, Chief, I'm ready to introduce Loretta. Well, of course I'll do a good job. Don't worry. Okay, you tell me what to say, and I'll say it, all right? Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Loretta Lynn. Boy, Chief, you got away with words.
3: He did just get hit by a train. It's true. And he trusted Gonzo to do something earlier and that ended in him getting hit by a train. So <laughs> maybe he wants to be extra careful.
2: When the story ends up with you getting hit by a train, you do question everything else that's come before.
3: So we get uh, an interesting song. Is a Loretta and the babies, not the Muppet babies, just the babies.
2: No, they're not the Muppet babies. The Muppet babies are way cuter.
3: Humanoid Muppets that come straight out of an 80s horror movie, and one of them is definitely carrying a knife. These are creepy looking. They are. They look like the Garbage Bale Kids. Hell. Yeah, they're very garbage pill kids. It's a song that was one of Loretta Lynn's hits. It was written by Shel Silverstein, uh, released in 1971. This is absolute nightmare fuel. And I feel a little guilty saying that, like we're not full Eraserhead baby, but we're approaching that.
2: It's close. There's a couple of of them that look kind of cute, and there's a couple of them that are just pure, like, demon spawn. Like Alice Cooper left him
3: behind. They might have chased him off.
4: What was I doing? Jimmy, get away from that. Don't let go with the phone. What's that? Bring a few homie buddies home. You're from the bar. Get away from that. <laughs> I mean, you what know, so could you stop at the market?
2: Yeah, the number's just about a woman. The song is a woman who's basically a homemaker. And she's talking about some of her other friends and what they've done and then she's talking about all of her kids and everything and the choruses and you know she's listening off her kids and then one's on the way you know she's pregnant there is a line in the song you mentioned she did that song called the pill Mm -hmm. um there's a line in this song where she says the pill may change the world tomorrow it's interesting a time where someone who is known to be fairly conservative was
3: that needle moves though i think the definition of conservative especially pre-reagan is different
2: my kids enjoyed the babies which I was i was scared this was going to mess them up more than Cooper, but they thought the babies were cute.
3: Is there some sort of like a, an age distortion? Because I know a lot of kids also thought the Teletubbies were cute, but those are terrifying. I love the Teletubbies, man. Never mind. My theory just went out the window. I'd...
2: Oh, I'm not saying they're cute. I just love watching the Teletubbies. It requires substances to help enhance your experience.
3: Old baby dolls are creepy, too. Like, the creepy doll that you see in every horror movie was probably prized by a little kid at some point.
2: I'm not going to say I haven't gone into my daughter's room and, like, caught their dolls, one of their, like, American Girl dolls, out of the corner of their eye and be like, you know, and it shot me.
3: It happens. You just need contingency plans in case they get possessed. It's okay, Chad. We won't judge you.
2: Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I, I've, I've, I'm well versed in my child's play. I know, I know how to defeat a Chucky.
3: Kermit and Gonzo arrive back just in time for the show to close, and Kermit thanks Loretta for being their guest, and Gonzo tells him he won't have to worry about any more trains. And the thing is, we have to give Gonzo credit because Gonzo is very solution oriented. His solutions are generally going to be wrong, but when he commits, whether yep. it's <laughs> digging his way out of the theater. Mm-hmm. or redirecting all of the trains by putting up a Looney Tunes sign that says, this is no longer a train station, it's an airport.
2: It's an airport? <laughs> yeah. It just they use works. the same. They use the same jet flyover sound effect that they used when Fozzie was trying to convince Kermit there were jets in the studio, in the theater.
3: <laughs> I didn't catch that, but that's good.
2: Yeah, and then we get the closing theme where Rolf comments that they're not actually playing uh, the music. They're playing a timetable. <laughs> and they play a very, very off key and off rhythm version of uh, the closing theme. Did you notice that part of the band was a chicken with a trumpet?
0: No wonder this sounds bad. We're playing a timetable. <laughs>
2: I think this is the the most structure busting they've done since Steve Martin, maybe. Yeah,
3: I, I think it was a solid episode. I think it was strong. I think that our guest star was strong as well. It just, there's low resonance there for me. And that's not, that's nothing yeah. against them. That problem is entirely me.
2: Well, it's not even a problem. It's just, you know, you dig what you dig.
3: Next time. Something old. Something new. Something borrowed. Something green.
2: So, next week, we will be discussing episode 309 with the man, the myth, the legend, Liberace. <laughs> I'm so excited. And then episode 310 with actress Marissa Berenson. The only thing I know about her is she was in a Stanley Kubrick movie. Nick's research will tell you which one. At Lunatic Daring. Everywhere online. And uh, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. Thank you for listening. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Schonk and hosted by Chad J. Shank and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of
0: Antithesis Audio. Well, what'd you think? Oh a bit
1: shaky. <laughs>